You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, church. My name is Daniel Forbes. Uh, me and my wife has, have been visiting Redeemer Odessa for about two months now, so I'm excited to be here. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be reading from the text of Psalm 22, 1 through 8. So you can follow along on the screen behind me. Um, So uh, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer me. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by my people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Hey, good morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. Thank you so much for being here. If you're a guest, uh, again, welcome. There's a connect card under your chair. If you would take a minute, fill that out. Let us know how we could serve you. Let us know how we could get you plugged into the life of the body here at Redeemer. And if you're on your phone, we're in Psalm 22, like Daniel said, and we use the ESV. Um, If you... Need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and somebody would be happy to bring you one. Um, All right, so this is the last sermon in our lament series. And I have to say that when I started planning this out, middle to late spring, I was really unsure of how this was going to go and how this would land on all of you. I knew I needed it, but in terms of you guys, like I just was really unsure. But it's become clear to me that this series has been really timely for our little church. Um, I know that all of us are, are dealing with one thing or another, ranging in severity of suffering. But what I hope this series has given you is an understanding of a few things. Number one, chief among them, is that if you're a Christian, God is for you. God has invited you to cast your fears your anxieties, your failures, and your hopes onto him. Our Christian journey is really as varied as the seasons, marked with the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And through it all, we have a great high priest in Jesus who sees us and through his spirit is interceding for us. And so my encouragement to you, like, Uh, just as we leave this lament series, is for you to not leave lament behind as we finish this series. My hope for you, my encouragement for you, is to really lean deeply into this prayer language of lament and do it often. Don't neglect it. Make lament a part of your own personal worship liturgy or your own personal worship routine as you read the Bible And as you pray and as you consider your life, lament and lament with hope that Jesus will return and will restore and will make all things new. 
So I've intentionally saved Psalm 22 to the end of our series because I want to show you that when we lament as the people of God, we're in really good company. Just as a reminder, so we're all on the same page, I know some of you are new to this and new to this series. Lament means a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. As an action, it's mourning the things in our life and in this world that just aren't right. And in Christian lament, it's our prayer language. It's our prayer language. It's how we bring our sorrows to God. Lament is how we navigate our lives between the two places where life is really hard and where God in his sovereignty, his kingly rule, his kingly reign, his kingly control is worthy to be trusted. So today, this lament that we're looking at is prophetically uttered by David a few thousand years before Jesus. And then ultimately, it's uttered by Jesus as he is hanging on the cross, accomplishing redemption and forgiveness for the saints. And as he's there, he feels the same pains. And in his agony, he quotes the first verse of, of, of the psalm. This psalm has been called the Psalm of the Cross. And so I want to spend our time together this morning being reminded of the cross of Jesus and being reminded of our own redemption, regardless of how we feel or what our circumstances in our lives may tell us right this second. I just want to remind you of the nature and character of Jesus, our suffering servant who will become our conquering king. So let's pray and let's dive in. Lord Jesus, we commit this morning to you. Lord, thank you for being our great high priest who has endured life, becoming flesh, dwelling among us. Lord, and you endured the cross on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would just remind us of your nearness to us this morning. Remind us of your great love for us this morning, Lord. And just also remind us that you sympathize with us because you have experienced what we have experienced and what we are experiencing. Lord, again, I just pray that um, you would teach us to trust even in the midst of hard circumstances. Lord, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, and so I pray that you would continue to be kind to us. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you pray for yourself that the Lord would remind you of his goodness regardless of what your circumstances are telling you, regardless of what your emotions are telling you. That the Lord would draw you into the sphere of his love this morning and that you would sense his presence. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, again, Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out, or I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. All right, so I'm just going to start with a couple of contextual things. If you've been a believer for a while or if you've read the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion in Mark and in Matthew, the words of verse 1 are likely very familiar to you. 
And if these aren't familiar to you, that's okay. Let me just tell you that um, as Jesus is experiencing the cross, he experiences what Galatians 3 tells us is the curse. The curse that was on us. The curse that was ours to bear because of our sin. God placed upon himself in the person of Jesus the iniquity, our wickedness, our sinful brokenness. God placed upon himself the iniquity of us all. And this curse is that because of our sin, we are separated from God. And bound for an eternity, separated from him in hell were it not for Jesus. Jesus cries out these words on the cross, these words that would have been ours were it not for Jesus. And yet, if we're honest, we've all felt forsaken. We've all felt abandoned. Even at times, we have even felt forsaken and abandoned by God himself as did Jesus on the cross. But before we dive too deeply into the cross of Jesus, we first need to approach this psalm in its original context. This was written by David, King David, in the midst of some struggle. There are a lot of theories that scholars, guys who are smarter than me, would suggest is happening to David in David's life at the time he wrote this psalm. However, textually, we can't really be sure about what was going on. But what we can confidently say is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David writes this psalm as a prophetic voice of what he foresaw as the coming Messiah, what he foresaw in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. David is feeling abandoned. David is feeling forsaken. And he pins these words. Unlike some of the other laments of David, David is writing these words not in a response to any sin he has committed. He is writing this lament from what appears to be a blameless place. And that is one of the ways we know this can't be entirely about David and David's struggle alone because Jesus is the only sinless person that has ever lived. So we're confronted first with these prayers and petitions of a righteous lamenter who, keeping with the pattern of lament, directly addresses the Lord through prayer. Look at how personal this is. In verse 1, he says, My God, my God, calling again on the covenantal relationship, the promise of God, the promise keeper God. He is calling on this relationship of a God to his people that God is with them and he will establish them and God's kingdom will be forever. David is appealing to the promises of God by his direct address to God. Then he moves from his direct address to God to his complaint. Again, following the pattern of lament. He says, my God, I feel like you've abandoned me. I feel like you're distant from me. I feel like you've forgotten me, and I feel like you're ignoring me. Anybody else ever felt this? Just David? Cool. Um, Dr. Kinder says, it's not a lapse of faith. It's not a lapse of faith that David is praying this. 
nor is it a broken relationship. But it is a cry of disorientation as God's familiar, protective presence is withdrawn. And the enemy seems to be closing in around him. This cannot be a lapse of faith in David. Because David's praying to God. Faithless people don't pray. This is not a lapse of faith. Because David is praying. David's petition means that he is confident that although he is feeling what he is feeling, and those feelings are real... They aren't always an accurate depiction of what is really going on. David isn't experiencing a lack of faith. Rather, you could argue that this is a place of trust. That when our feelings and our emotions are out of whack and things aren't right and our feelings and our emotions want to lie to us and tell us we're alone, David is remembering what he knows to be true. This is the same God that has rescued David from obscurity. This is the same God that has saved him out of the hand of Goliath and thus saved the nation. This is the same God that has saved David from the hand of his persecutor Saul. This is the same God that forgives and redeems and restores when David commits adultery and murder. This God. This God is worthy to be trusted. This is why it's so important for you, Christian. This is why it's so important for you, church, to remember the work of the Lord. So when you're feeling fearful, when you're feeling anxious, when you are feeling hopeless, when you are feeling angry, when you are feeling faithless, or anything else, You can remind yourself of the truth of God's goodness and God's faithfulness to you. Look at what else he says. Verse 3 says, Yet you are holy. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were put to shame. Man, here we have David reminding us of some of the most important words of lament. When we see words like yet, I think in Daniel's translation it said but, so yet, but, although. The temperature has changed from complaint to trust. It's changed from complaint to praise. Perhaps you could think of this like even just a shift in in thinking even. Though we have these words, this change doesn't mean that the situation has improved. But it does mean that our heart is going to be moved towards the Lord. It's going to be moved towards Jesus as we remind ourselves of truth. David says, although all of this is going on, yet, yet I know, God, that you are holy, you are blameless, you are set apart. This is where in the book Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Vrogrop, he says, pain and belief coexist here in this space. These transitional words remind us that our pain doesn't have to stop before we ask God for help. 
Man, I think some of you need to hear that again. Your pain and your struggle doesn't necessarily mean that something is wrong with you. Sometimes I think if we are really honest with ourselves, you don't approach God in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sin. And I think there's a number of reasons for each of us why, why we don't. And when you consider the nature of it all, regardless of what those reasons may be for you, it is all rooted in pride and unbelief. And we all deal with that to some level. Every sin we commit is rooted in pride and unbelief that we don't think God is good. And when we don't approach God in the midst of struggle of any kind, we don't believe that he cares about it, or we don't believe that he cares for us, or even maybe you think you deserve what you're getting. What the cross of Jesus tells us is that none of this is true. Let me give you an honest look into my life uh, for a second. Sometimes I don't approach God when I'm struggling. And when I don't, I have at some deep cognitive level convinced myself that God cares about all of you. But maybe he's grown tired of dealing with me. And that's a lie from the enemy. And that's pride in my own heart. And that's just not the heart of God, who is a loving father. That is not the heart of God to us. We project everything and everyone else onto God. Sometimes God sounds like my parents or God sounds like my last couple of pastors. And that leads us to resentment. And that leads us to bitterness, not rest and not faith. And not dependency, which is what God has invited us into. The grace of lament is that we get to struggle towards Jesus. Devante reminded me of this quote from Gentle and Lowly uh, by Dane Ortland. We have a bunch of those out there on the resource table. Uh, you can just take one there for you if you'll read it. Don't take it and then let it sit in your car for years and years until you sell your car. But take that book and, take that book and read it. It's great. Dane Orland says it brings Jesus joy to help us. It is the reason he came to the earth. He receives more joy from helping us than we do from receiving help. The only requirement is that we come to him in faith. David, in the midst of his suffering, is calling us back to the deliverance of the nation, of God's chosen people. God delivered them. God has provided salvation for, for them. And he's also orchestrated salvation for us by delivering us from sin and death and giving us life by faith in the Son's work on the cross through the resurrection of Jesus. Throughout the course of human history, the Lord has been working to rescue and redeem his people. From Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and introduced the curse of sin, that we would be separated from God without his rescue, the world has felt the pains of sin. And the Lord in his grace 
came to earth, dwelt among us, lived a perfect sinless life, and died the death that we, we deserved. Creating a way for us by his death and by his resurrection to be reconciled and restored back to God. And now through his Holy Spirit, he is interceding for us and will return someday to restore what our first parents broke. But we live in this life where sin is present. Look at verse 6. David says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Here we see more prophetic signs pointing to the cross and David's suffering. David is experiencing ridicule. David is experiencing mocking. But the point of this psalm, and the point of all of the Bible for that matter, is that we would see Jesus. So David is pointing us to the cross. Verses 6 and 7 highlight the feeling of insignificance of the psalmist. We also see this in the response of people to Jesus while he's on the cross. Matthew 27 shows us people walking by Jesus, mocking him, shaking their heads at him, and Jesus remains affixed to the cross, trusting God to rescue and trusting God for the deliverance that he was accomplishing. Because the text says the delight that Jesus the Son has is in the Father. Verse 8 is written as the mockers accuse the sufferer. Similar to the words and insults they hurl at Jesus. He saved others, let him save himself. David is experiencing that as well. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord deliver him. It's just laced with sarcasm. You can hear the unbelief in the mockers. And listen to me for a second. Church, the Lord doesn't exist for your convenience. So we see in the mocking that's taking place in this text is these unbelievers like calling on David to call on his Lord to like fix everything. And David could go on about his business. The Lord does not exist for your convenience. You, on the other hand, exist for the glory of the Lord, to worship and honor the Lord with your life. And yet, for a lot of us, we treat Jesus this way. We often function in our lives as if Jesus is only there when we need him and don't ever consider Christ until we're in desperate need. Like God is some cosmic out there genie who bends to grant our every wish and desire. Man, if this is your position, or if this is how you function, it's not too late. It's not too late to change, and you're not too far from God. However, I would invite you to consider not only what this posture towards Jesus communicates about you, but also the amount of fear and anxiety that that can lead you to. When you never consider Jesus, you are communicating that you think you don't need Jesus. And there is no hope, there is no safety there. Because what the gospel teaches us 
is that we're so incapable of saving ourselves that we needed a Savior. In and of ourselves, we cannot undo the curse and the brokenness of our sin. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough to make ourselves right before God. We can't be holy without His holiness on our behalf. We need Christ's work in our hearts and in our lives. And we then need to be filling ourselves up with the things of Jesus through reading the Bible, through prayer, and through worship with the body of Christ. When life gets hard, because it is hard, and sometimes it's harder in other seasons than it is right now, when life gets hard, what you fill your life up with pours out of you. Christian, it ought to be Christ. Because Christ has done the work for us, now we get to lovingly pursue him as he lovingly pursues us. And David then leads us to another place of trust in his lament. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. David is reminding us yet again of who God is. He's calling him to act. Verse 11, he says, trouble is near, and only God can help him. Just look at the goings-on in David's life and consider the cross of Jesus. Verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a, a, a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So biblically speaking, there's no indication that David has ever pierced through his hands and his feet. There's no biblical evidence even that David's clothes were ever gambled for. This is calling us to the cross of Calvary where these things happen to Jesus. David writes from a place of trust, and David gives us a picture of the physical and spiritual anguish that the Lord Jesus is dealing with on the cross. Pain racks his body from the nails that pierced his skin. Dehydration takes over. Jesus is emaciated. And he's suspended naked for all the world to see. His enemies then gamble for his clothes. The Roman soldiers gamble for his clothes. And the psalmist, like the Lord Jesus, still prays. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
He asked for the nearness of the Lord and the quick response from the Lord. The psalmist is recognizing that he is in great need and he prays. He is praying to the only one that can help him. Daniel Aiken says that only the Lord can give him the strength to endure the torturing and the suffering he is experiencing. His life is almost at an end. And because he recognizes this, he prays that only the Lord can help him and remain faithful to him. Notice the shift in the psalm here. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord to the it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Clearly, deliverance has been accomplished. and David has moved from affliction to praise. David is no longer praying for deliverance because it's been completed. What we're experiencing in this emotional journey that David is taking us on is the fulfillment of the promise that God has made to redeem a people for himself from every tribe, every nation, every tongue on the face of the earth. But in between, we have this reality that life is really hard. I wish it weren't, but it is. And there's sin, and there's brokenness, and there's devastation all around us. And the consequences of that, oftentimes, is suffering. And unfortunately, it is suffering, oftentimes, for the believer. But for, but for believers, for Christians, how we endure and how we suffer speaks to our position as sons and daughters. It speaks to our identity as Christians. God is near to us in the midst of suffering. And if you consider what the New Testament says about suffering, our faith is actually perfected in the midst of suffering. And therefore, Christian, your suffering is not in vain. There is purpose in it. And one of those purposes is to draw us nearer and closer to Jesus. This psalm through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is inviting us to taste and see that the Lord is good. We can't know the goodness of the Lord without first experiencing the bitterness of the cross. 
We can't hold on to the beauty and wonder of our redemption without first knowing the depths of our own depravity. Christopher Ashe says that when Jesus uttered the words from the cross, the first verse of this psalm, it wasn't because he didn't know the answer. He knew that it was the entire purpose of his being made flesh, that he must endure the hell of God-forsakenness to pay the penalty for sinners. And yet, in the agony of his separation, which was ours, which was supposed to be ours, which was ours to experience because of our sin, because God in his holiness cannot be in the presence of sin, the agony of Christ's separation from the Father, whom he had known with loving delight for all eternity, this psalm begins to fully express the depth of Jesus' suffering. But even as he endured the curse of being forsaken, somehow this psalm spoke to the suffering of Christ's heart as the joy set before him was giving him strength to endure to the very end where he could cry out, it is finished. What the psalm in its entirety is teaching is that the believer in Christ will likely face suffering for the sake of being a believer in Christ. But as we suffer with him, those that endure to the end with him, him receive glorification with Christ. Glorification means this perfect conformity of the believer to the image of Jesus Christ, both in body and in soul. It is the perfection, the completion of this journey with Jesus. Remember for a second the goal of our Christian journey is not that we get to heaven. Although that is a great reward for being faithful to Jesus. The goal is glorification. Our perfection completed through Jesus, growing us more and more like him daily over the course of our life. The goal of our Christian journey is that we would get to be with Jesus, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The gospel The good news of Jesus, who lived and died and was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God, provided our adoption to be sons and daughters through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This creates not only restoration for us, not only is heaven and eternal life possible, but now we're a part of God's family. Jesus, as our Savior, is now our brother And we are co-heirs with Jesus. Everything promised to Jesus and afforded to Jesus as the Son of God is now ours. If you are a Christian, we will reign and rule with Jesus for all eternity as inheritors of a kingdom. And that's good news for our future, right? But it also ought to change how we live now. It ought to change us now. It means that since we're co-heirs with Jesus, God is for us now. Since we're co-heirs with Jesus, God is growing us now. We are a part of God's family now. 
God is not done with you, Christian. God will not forsake you, Christian. God is pleased with you because of the blood of Jesus to you. Because of your sonship, you cannot outsend the loving arm of the Father's gracious reach. Because of Jesus, we will never have to suffer for our sins, even though we should have to. Jesus has done that fully and completely. But we are invited to suffer with him for the growth and perfection of our faith, as James 1 tells us. We're invited to suffer with Jesus on this side of eternity. So, Christian, we will, in some measure, feel the pain of Psalm 22. And we will, Christian... Feel the full measure of the end of Psalm 22 as well. Where Christ completes what he started. The last section of Psalm 22 is resurrection language. This is the language of Jesus from verse 22, verses 22 through 31. This is what God has accomplished through Jesus. We are inheriting a kingdom with no pain, no affliction, no famine, no hunger, no war, no loss of any kind, no death. Just delight in the presence of Jesus. Because as verse 31 says, he has done it. Our response then is this. I want to speak to you first, Christians in the room. You have a couple of responses to this. Number one, your response is worship. You are to worship Jesus for the cross, for the resurrection, for the redemption of your life. You are to worship him for his nature and character and his goodness to you, even in the midst of pain and suffering, because God is near. God desires you. With everything you have ever done, said, or thought, God knows it all and is still desiring you and still desiring a relationship with you. Your pain and your struggle, even your struggle with sin, isn't an invitation to turn away from God, but to lean into God by the grace that lament has given you. And rest in the finished work of Jesus. Lament and grieve. Lament your losses, grieve your losses, lament and grieve your sin. Lament brokenness all around you, but grieve in view of God's mercy and grace to you. Lament reminds us that we can boldly approach God in confidence because God is kind to us. Even in the midst of our own discipline and correction from him, Suffering as a Christian is in place to remind us of our need for God. Consider this. At the end of our lives, if we have had an easy life, money, comfort, security, but we don't have Jesus, we're hopeless. Rather, if you suffer and endure with Christ... We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Our response to suffering, provided that we suffer towards Jesus, is a response to 
dependency, to trust in Jesus, to continue to pursue Jesus. And that leads us to mission. Look at what David says in 22 and 23 and 27. Because of the faithfulness of God to the promises he made, completed through Jesus, Christian, you now have a responsibility to live on mission. You are not to keep your story of forgiveness to yourself. You have been blessed to therefore be a blessing. You have been given a story to tell. You are called into a kingdom of priests to go and tell. To go and make disciples in the name of Jesus. So again, I want to put this in front of you. Who are you praying for? Who are you praying for that doesn't know Christ? And who are you pursuing missionally? If you're not pursuing someone, you're missing a huge part of the blessing of being a follower of Jesus. Lament, grieve, live on mission. Trust. Trust in God who says he is with you. Man, if you're not a believer, the invitation is is faith. You've been invited into faith in the work of Jesus for you. And you've been invited to repent of your sins, to lay down your burdens at the foot of the cross, to turn from your sin, to turn from your shame, and to quit trying in your own strength to fix yourself, but to rest in the forgiveness that has been purchased for you through the cross of Christ. So repent. And believe, all of us, Christ is for us. Christ is working for our good and for his glory. So let's trust him today. Let's pray.